orchestra and praise team for leading us in a time of worship and praise to our Lord. Hebrews chapter 2, if you have your Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. We're studying through the book of Hebrews, if you're one of our guests here today. And so we're studying through this great book, and we're looking at the greatness and the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ over all things, all people. If you are one of our guests, I'm thankful that you're here today. We are honored to have you and would love to have a record of your attendance with us today and just give you some more information about our church and its ministries. And the way you can do that is when you leave here today, if you'll just go out into the foyer uh, and go to the welcome desk and some of our team will meet you out there and love to talk with you and give you also a gift for being here today. We are so grateful that you are here. While you're turning to Hebrews chapter 2, let me say a couple things before we pray and dig into this text. Next week is Easter Sunday, and so it's always one of my favorite times of the year as we gather for the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you haven't had a chance yet to invite someone to come with you next week. Let me encourage you this week to do so. Let me encourage you to think of someone in your life that is unchurched, a person that you believe maybe is not saved, a person who needs to come with you next week and hear the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. And so I'd encourage you to do that. Pray about that. Go invite them. Meet them in the parking lot if you have to when they arrive. Ask them to come sit with you uh, and then pray for God to work in their lives as they hear the message of truth next week. Then on the 16th, April the 16th, so two weeks from today, we're having one combined worship service at 1030. There'll be no connect groups that day. Uh, children's ministry only through about four years old. So kindergarten and above come into a big church uh, that, that day also. And so it'll be a great time for us to gather together, pack this room out, and spend some time together uh, worshiping our Lord through song and through the Word of God. And then what we'll do at the end of the service is we'll have dinner on the ground. And I know that a church our size, it's difficult to do that, but we've done it before and God blessed it, and, uh, and so we want to do that again. So our uh, hostess ministry team has been at work working out a plan to do that. Uh, and so here's what I've been asked to do, and I'm going to ask you if you will do this. If, if you, as a family unit, will bring enough food for your family and a few more, so you bring something like a meat, a vegetable, a casserole, a dessert for your family and a few more. And if every family unit will do that, now if you're a single person, you just bring a dish. You bring a good casserole or you bring a meat with you or you bring a dessert uh, and you, you do that. And if we all do that, then what will happen is we're going to have plenty of food. That's what happened the last time we did this. Now, <clears throat> here's what you do. You bring your food before the 1030 service to the fellowship hall kitchen area. And there'll be members of our hostess ministry team there to get that. They'll go and distribute that. And then you come on to church. And we'll celebrate and we'll worship and they'll guard the food. <laughs> uh, and then after the service, what we're going to do then is we'll... Uh, dismiss in shifts like we did the last time. So we're going to let the, our senior adults go first and you make your way down there and, and fix your plate and get settled in. Then we'll let our younger families with children and child care go and then we'll just go in shifts like that. And then, you know, my group gets leftovers. <laughs> That's just what will happen probably, but it doesn't matter. It's going to be a good time. And then what we're also going to have on that day is there'll be some inflatables outside, uh, outside the fellowship hall area and those grass areas between 
the building and the playground and maybe one in the playground. We'll strategically locate them so you'll have some things to do for kids after you get through eating. So we're just going to have a time to hang out, and we're just going to fellowship. And that's, that would be just a good time to do that. We don't get to see each other often. And even if we had a room big enough to get every one of us in, you still wouldn't be able to see everybody. <laughs> and this gives us a great chance to do that, to go and talk and, and, and just fellowship uh, for a while. And that's going to be on the 16th. I'm looking forward to that. So keep that in mind. Well, let's pray and we'll dig into our text for today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful I am for the day you've given us. I thank you for my church family, how I love this church family. I pray now, Father, that you would give to me the ability to be able to preach the Word of God with power. I pray for clarity of mind, clarity of speech. I know, Lord, I can't do this without you, and I need you to strengthen me. I want more than anything right now to glorify you and to be very accurate with the Word of God. And I pray you'll captivate everybody's attention, give everyone ears to hear, what the Spirit has to say to us today. I pray you'll encourage Christians. You'll even confront us, Lord, where we, where we need that. And I also pray, Lord, you will speak to those who are unsaved. And I pray today they will recognize the hope that is available for them through Jesus and receive Christ. And so, Lord, please help me, strengthen me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And here's the subject I'm going to deal with today. Christ's humiliation for humanity. Christ's humiliation for humanity. And when I mean humiliation, I mean the very fact that he became man and he suffered and he died and then he rose again, praise God, for the redeeming work for mankind. Now, think with me for just a moment. In the Christian life, we are constantly faced with the choice of sacrificing our own personal desires and our own wants so that we follow the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we, we follow the Word of God. There's desires that well up within us that we know are contrary to God's Word, and so what we do as a saved person is we put those things to death and we subject ourselves to obedience to Christ to follow Him. We're constantly bombarded because we're finding ourselves at odds with the world system around us. And let me just tell you this, and sometimes, you know, folks will leave church here, they'll go to a place to go to college, and, and then they're suddenly bombarded with a completely different worldview than they've ever heard before. And let me just help us understand something. As believers, the world around us will be at odds with us. Satan is over this world system, which is the, the system of belief and practice and thought and philosophy. Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, that, that world system. And it's going to be at odds with us. And sometimes that wrecks the world of, of, of some. We should just understand Jesus told us that the world hates him, it's going to hate us. So if we follow Him, the world system around us is always going to be at odds with us. What we do is not submit to the world system. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do as a follower of Jesus Christ. Why, why do we make the choice not to give in to the culturally accepted and personal impulses to sexual desire and we follow God's design for sexuality? 
Why is it that we give of our time and resources we've been given to serve the cause of Christ? Why is it that we choose to submit ourselves to God's definition of love and the way we should treat others when we sometimes think we have a right to respond back in kind to persons who have hurt us and they have come against us? Why do we choose to respond the way Christ said to and not the way our flesh wants to and we think we have a right to do? We choose these things because we understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, and He is worthy of our obedience, and He has given to us a great salvation. And what we are to do is to surrender to Him and obey Him because we have received such a great salvation. And there is only one way to respond to having received such a great salvation, and that is complete obedience to Him. In the book of Ephesians, we find... The first three chapters, uh, Paul, by the Spirit of God, outlines the doctrine of salvation. And then when he gets to chapter 4, the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians, he uh, writes how we should live once we've received this salvation. And, and there is a way in which we're to live out life once we're saved. And he said in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The calling speaks of the calling of salvation. So God calls, we answer that call and repent and surrender to Him as Lord and Savior. We become regenerated, we become a new creation. Matter of fact, you read on in that chapter and you'll find uh, this terminology of the new man. That speaks of the new person that we become when we are saved, when we are regenerated. The book of Romans is another example. The book of Romans is the most extensive book on the doctrine of salvation. Eleven chapters, Paul is dealing to some degree with the doctrine of salvation. Then we get to chapter 12, and he starts talking about how you live once you are saved, that practical um, living out of our salvation. And here's how he transitions. He says again, I beseech you, I urge you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, because, that is, because we've received the mercy of God, that you, here's, here's the right response to having received the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the Word of God teaches us the reasonable response to having received the Word of God, uh, the, the gospel of Jesus, eternal salvation. It's absolutely selling out to Jesus. It's obeying Him. Now, in our text for today, the immediate context, back up in verse 3, warns against neglecting so great a salvation. And then in verses 5 and following, the writer of Hebrews, by the Spirit of God, begins to just flesh out uh, how great this salvation is that we have received. So let's read these verses, and then I'm going to dig into them for a few minutes this morning. Look with me in verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. 
For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, in chapter 1, in the first uh, verses of chapter 1, and then, of course, really all of chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews makes this case for the greatness and the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things and all people. In the first three verses, he gives seven things about the greatness of the Lord Jesus. He is heir of all things. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is... Uh, the glory of God. He is the express image of the person of God. He is Savior because He's purged our sins, and He is sovereign because He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. It speaks of His deity. He is God the Son. And then in verses 4 through 14 in chapter 1, uh, there's a case made that He is superior to angels, these elite spiritual beings, but Jesus Christ is above them. And we find in those verses some Old Testament evidence that supports how Jesus is superior. Number one, because He is Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, He is superior to angels. He is preeminent. That means He's over all things. Angels actually serve Him. And then the Word of God teaches us that He is the sovereign over all. He is ruler and king of the cosmos. And that's what's said there in those verses. And then... Uh, all of this is pointing to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after a break in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, just reminding us, pay attention to the message of truth so you don't drift away, you don't get involved in spiritual drift. Then he begins to talk about the, the humanity aspects of Christ. He talks about the incarnation. The humility of the Lord Jesus Christ being made a little lower than the angels so He could suffer and die for us. So He talks about the incarnation here in, in what we're talking about today. So the main idea of this is that Christ's humiliation to redeem humanity. What He did for us, my brothers and sisters, is absolutely unfathomable. It's shocking. It's awe-inspiring. And to study this helps us to understand the greatness of our salvation. So there's two things I want us to see here today, two major takeaways from this text that we need to see. Here's the first one. Humanity failed in our original purpose. What was our original purpose? Well, it was to have communion with God. It was to glorify Him, of course, and it was to rule over the earth. Now, the Word of God says in verse 5, uh, He, which means God, did not assign angels to rule over the world to come. And I'd say this also, He did not design angels to rule over uh, the original creation either. Human beings were assigned by God to do just that. God did not create this world for angels to rule over. And the Word of God says here in verse 5, that He did not appoint angels to rule over the kingdom or the world that is to come. Now, that world to come 
is the millennial kingdom of Christ. I believe that's what's talked about. Now, let me, let me just tell you something. Y'all still with me? I know it's kind of hot in here today. These ACs are going to be working. But y'all got to stay with me now. You can't just drift off because it's so hot in here, all right? Y'all hang with me today. Listen. When the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected and he ascended back to heaven, uh, the Word of God says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. He began to reign. The inauguration of his kingdom happened. But would you also not agree with me today that everything has not yet been subjected to Christ in this world. Now, remember, He is sovereign over all things. He could do anything He wants to at any time, but He has allowed right now the world to go on as it is, but there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns that everything will be in subjection to Him, sin will be eradicated, people will obey Him, He will rule with a rod of iron, the Word of God teaches us. It's part of that it's part of that now yet not yet mentality of the kingdom of God. There is a world to come, and angels were not the ones to rule over that. That's the millennial kingdom and then the future eternal kingdom of God. The word world here is a word that's always used in the New Testament of the inhabited world. It speaks specifically of humanity. There's, there's multiple references to that in the New Testament. So who is to rule over this kingdom? Well, well, then the writer of Hebrews quotes a psalm. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6 uh, is, is what he's quoting here in verses 6 through 8 of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, King David, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do, was in awe of God that he would think so highly of human beings, <clears throat> the crown of his creation. And that God would have such great purpose for the only members of His creation that He made in His own image. Little old humanity was to bear the image of God, was to have honor and glory, and have dominion over all the earth. That's God's created purpose for us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 teaches this. Here's what the Word of God says. Then God said, "'Let us make man in our image.'" According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. In verse 6, David uh, is amazed that God is mindful of humanity. He says in verse 6, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? That word mindful is a word that means to be concerned with. And God is concerned with those he's made in his image. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that means the people of this world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has a love and a care for all those who are made in His image. The word care that we see there in verse 6 was a word that was often used to describe doctors who would go and make calls to care for people and to, to, to minister to them and help them. And it shows how God loves the crown of His creation. 
and how through His common grace, He ministers to people, even people who don't love Him and who have rejected Him. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew 5 and in Luke chapter 6 that those of us who follow Jesus Christ should be people who love even our enemies. If we just love people that love us, you know, what does that mean for us? I mean, even lost people do that, the Lord says. He says we're to love even our enemies. And then he gives an example because that's what God does. God sends the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5 tells us. Luke chapter 6 says that he is kind to the evil and unthankful. God has a love. Now, I believe God has a special love for those he's redeemed. But there is a love that he has for, for all of humanity. And the Bible says of humanity that we've been made a little lower than the angels. That word little means for a period of time. Lower than the angels for a time, the Scripture says. You know that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us one day we're going to rule and judge angels? That's amazing, and we're not really sure what all that means, but that's what the Scripture says. Man is crowned with glory and honor, the, the psalmist says. Verse 7 and 8 says, He is set over the works of His hands. God originally created humans to rule over His creation. Everything in the world was subject to Adam and Eve. The fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals, all of creation was in subjection to them. They were to have dominion over the earth. God also gave to them a freedom of will to choose, and yet they disobeyed God. God knew it was going to take place. It took place, and He worked His plan from there. Man who were made to rule the earth blew it. The Word of God says that Adam was made from the dust of the earth. He was made to rule over the earth, but because he sinned, guess what? He would die and return to the earth. The curse of sin took effect on him. And the world which was subjected to him, the book of Genesis says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, that he would now have to, have to really work to tame the earth because it would work against him. The ground would produce thorns. He would have to really work by the sweat of his brow to tame the earth. As human beings, we have all failed to glorify God and obey Him and fulfill that original purpose that God really still has assigned for us. We, by the grace of God, are given power to, uh, to problem-solve and, and work and invent things. We, we, we've invented machines now that we can move mountains. <laughs> And we can just move the earth and, and change the landscape of things. We have created technology that has brought us leaps and bounds in, in being able to live life and accomplish things. We have, in, have invented medicines to cure diseases, which were the actual sign of the curse of sin that brings about death. And in so many accomplishments, God has allowed human beings to make by His grace. But no matter how much we gain and no matter how much we attempt to make life comfortable, we cannot simply tame this earth. It is not under our dominion completely because of our sinfulness and rebellion against God. You can think about a few years ago in 2018 when Hurricane Michael came through. There was no amount of human ingenuity that could have stopped that. And we dealt with the after effects of that. 
as a race of people, and let me just remind you of something. I don't even like the, the term race when we refer to different ethnic groups because I'm going to tell you something. There's one race. It's not the white race or the black race or the brown race. There's one race. It's the human race. Every one of us have descended from Adam and Eve, every one of us. Adam is the head of the human race, and because he sinned, every one of us have inherited sinfulness. Every one of us, and that's why we failed to do what God has designed for us to do. We are alienated from God because of this. We're not in communion with God. We're not over the earth as we're called to be. This psalmist, though, gives us hope. How is it possible for us who are under Adam, the head of our race, how is it possible for us to ever reclaim dominion over the earth? How is it possible for us to ever reclaim communion with God and have a relationship with Him? What humanity has failed to do, the Lord Jesus Christ has succeeded in. God became man and dwelled among us. The second thing I want to show you this morning is this. Jesus succeeded at what humanity failed to do and redeems people to their original purpose. And that purpose is to have a relationship with God, communion with God, and to have dominion uh, over the earth. Psalm 8 has another meaning to it. There is no doubt when David penned this by the Spirit of God, in his mind fully he was talking about the human race, and that is, that is what it means in the original context. But there is a Christological use of this psalm also. It has a, it has a reference to Christ, the perfect human being that would come and do what none of us could do. What Adam failed to do, Jesus will and did accomplish. And this psalm, again, it points to Christ. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday, matter of fact, quoted this psalm. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 16, when he was in the temple and the children were praising him, calling him the son of David, and the Pharisees were saying, you better stop them from doing that. And, and he says, out of the mouth of babes. That, that's a quotation from Psalm 8. Paul used this psalm also to refer to Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 27. Verse 6 of Hebrews 2, the psalm refers also to the Son of Man. You see that in, in, in that verse? Now, of course, it refers to humanity there, but that is the Lord Jesus' favorite term for Himself. It's used 84 times in the New Testament. Son of Man. It's an allusion to Christ. The Lord Jesus referred, is referred to in the Scriptures as the second Adam. You ever study that? Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. That is because, see, He fulfilled everything the first Adam failed to do. Al Mohler says, Whereas the first Adam failed to carry out the duties of image-bearing, the last Adam has succeeded. Now again, look at verse 8, last sentence. But now we do not see all things put under Him. As I mentioned to you a moment ago, that pronoun Him has been debated by scholars whether it means just humans, whether it means just Christ, or whether it means both. 
I believe it's an allusion to both. Christ is reigning right now. The Bible tells us that all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is sovereign over all things, can do anything He wants. But as I said a moment ago, He is allowing things to unfold as they are right now. And one day He will consummate His kingdom when He returns to rule and reign. Look at verse 9. We do not see right now things in subjection to humanity. But what we do see is Jesus. This is the first time the writer of Hebrews uses the name Jesus. It's, it's a reference to Christ's humanity. He's already established the case of His deity. Now He's talking about His humanity here. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. For a time, for a short period of time, He was made a little lower than the angels. Why? So he would suffer and die for us. Notice the word made there in verse 9. That's a perfect tense verb. What that means is completed action that keeps having uh, relevance or action today. So you know what that means? That means when he added humanity at his incarnation, he kept that humanity. In His glorified state, He is still the God-man. And that's why those first disciples saw the marks. When He told Thomas, look, look here, Thomas, look at these hands. Thomas, put your hand right here in my side. He bears still the marks of our redemption. Jesus made a little lower than the angels... The Word of God says, by God's grace, so that He could taste death for everyone. The word taste there means to experience it fully. Everyone points to the scope of His death. Why did He have to die? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. And so Jesus became human and lived the perfect life, fulfilled all the law of God, and then he died. Notice the word for right before everyone. That, that, that word means in the place of. That means he became our substitute. Jesus, the God-man, died to satisfy God's just wrath toward the sin of the world. And then he rose. And that death was absolutely sufficient for all. But that death has to be applied to the account of every individual by faith. It's sufficient for all, but it's got to be applied by faith. Sometimes persons may ask, did he die for me? Is he my substitute? Most of us have heard of Harriet Beecher Stowe and her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Most of us know that book that was in, written, published about mid-19th century, brought about, very controversial in that day. But probably few of us know the inspiration for her writing that novel. Her inspiration was a man by the name of Josiah Henson, 
Josiah Henson was an enslaved man who wanted to go hear a preacher that was nearby the plantation in which he lived and worked. And so he got permission to go and he went and he arrived at the place where, where John McKinney would be preaching and he, would not, he was not even allowed into the building. And so he stood in the doorway and he heard this man preach with passion and fire and power. This man was a man of God. He despised slavery. He desired to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all. And his text was Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. And he kept stressing this point, that Jesus Christ died for every man. And he emphasized his main point over and over. He said this. He said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tasted death for every man, for the high and for the low, for the rich and for the poor, for the bond and the free, for those in chains and the man in gold and diamonds. And this message touched the heart of Josiah Henson. And he thought, Jesus died for me. And he surrendered himself to Jesus. His life was changed. He became an honorable man of God. And he believed that the only honorable way for him to get his freedom would be to purchase it. And so he began to preach and raise money. And his master actually stole his funds and was going to sell him further south. And so they're on this boat on the Mississippi. They're headed down to New Orleans. And he happens to wake up and realizes everybody else on the boat is asleep. And he sees an axe, and he takes that axe, and he, he, ain't, he holds it up, and he's about to kill his master's 19-year-old nephew. He looked at it as self-defense, and they're gonna, what they're doing to him. And then suddenly he said he heard this voice, Josiah, are you a Christian? Will you commit murder? And he said, oh, no, I will not commit murder. I'd rather be a slave than to commit murder. He did finally escape, and he was used mightily to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to many people. He helped 118 enslaved people get their freedom. He was used mightily by the Lord. He had many different honors and recognitions. But this all started with a realization that Jesus Christ died for him. He tasted death for everyone. Someone asked me, did Jesus Christ die for me? I say, yes. Yes. Yes, he did. He tasted death for everyone. Al Mohler wrote, The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. The last Adam was plunged into death for the sake of humanity. The work of the last Adam undoes the work of the first Adam as one who fulfills the task originally given to Adam Jesus represents the ideal man who bears God's image rightly and exercises dominion over the cosmos y'all still with me I ain't quite done listen here's what the word of God tells me in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Those of us who are saved are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The Word of God tells me in Revelation chapter 
20 and verse 6, that we will rule and reign with Christ in His kingdom. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5 says that we will reign with Christ. It is because of Him reconciling us to God that we will one day also be able to fulfill that created purpose and have dominion over the earth and rule and reign with our glorious, magnificent Lord. How could I neglect so great a salvation? Y'all with me? I'm this close to shouting. Are y'all with me? We will one day rule and reign with our glorious Lord because He tasted death for us. Why would I dare not to serve Him right now? Why would I not surrender everything to Him and say no to the world, no to my flesh, no to the enemy's temptations, and live for Him when He has provided for me such a great and glorious salvation? And why would you, anyone in this room who is not saved yet, why would you not surrender your life to Jesus Christ who tasted death for you that you might be able to be reconciled to God and reign with Him one day? Why would you think the trinkets of this world and the futile pleasures of this world in some way are greater than following Jesus and having the life and the inheritance that He gives by His grace? And understanding this, why would, why would I not, and why would we not, as a body of Christ, put aside differences, murmurings, complaining, and griping, as we do so often uh, among human beings, and come together, humbling ourselves before God, and together have one focus, and that is to glorify our Lord and make Him known to everyone make disciples for Jesus Christ why would I not when he has provided so great a salvation this morning I don't know how God may have spoken to you it could be that we've been convicted because we know that we've not been living the way we should we've got this great salvation we've been taking it for granted we've been giving into the world we've been living for our flesh We've been reminded we're off course and we need to confess that before God and begin to follow Him. Maybe you're just strengthened and you've been encouraged in your walk with God this morning. You've been reminded of this great salvation that He's given to us. And there's some maybe in this room or listening online and you would say, I, I need Jesus as my Savior. I, I need Him. I need to call on Him right now. I, I believe He's tasted death for me and I, I want to receive Him and be forgiven and be given life. And he will indeed do that. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to stand to sing in a moment. I'd ask you to come where I am and just say, I need Jesus as Savior. Some might need to join the church. The altar is open to pray. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here in a few moments also. And it's good for us to get prepared for that. And so during this time of invitation... Let's prepare our hearts. Ask the Lord to speak to us. If there's things we need to get right with Him, let's, let's do so. Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for uh, the very fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has tasted death for everyone. I'm thankful that He has also risen from the dead, and that all who believe in Him and turn to Him will be saved.
And Lord, I pray today that, Father, you will work in the heart of the unsaved to know they're unsaved and, Lord, for them to surrender to you today and you would take away their sin and make them a new creation. And I pray for those of us who are saved that we just recognize how we should be living now that we have received such a great salvation. Lord, I pray you prepare our hearts as we reflect and participate in the Lord's Supper here in a few moments too. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please.